He is the captain of an army of angels. Lord Sabaoth. And he will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. Lord Sabaoth. You are not only the captain of an army of angels, but you are our king. And we worship you. And we've come this morning to give the homage that you are due of your people. Lord, we are unworthy servants. We are unworthy subjects of your kingdom. But, oh, Father, how we long to be found faithful in your eyes. And how we long, Father, to do what you command and to know the joy of living an obedient life before you. I pray, Father, that your Spirit would move among us in such a way as to wake up any sleeping church-goer who may believe that they are born again when they are not some drifter who is here to be spiritually indulged but lacks a commitment worthy of their Savior, I pray, Father, that you would save some and exhort and encourage and rebuke the rest for your great glory and for our incalculable joy. For we pray it by the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. And amen. Today we begin chapter 2, and let's read the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying to them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. As you read the New Testament, it becomes apparent that salvation is not so much a matter of starting well as it is finishing well. The real test as to whether you truly belong to Christ is not whether you said the sinner's prayer or whether you walked a church aisle or whether you've been baptized or whether you teach Sunday school or whether you serve as a deacon or even an elder. The real test is this. Did you exit this life clinging with all your might to the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Did you exit this life clinging with all your might to the Lord Jesus? That's the only question that matters. The Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was written had gotten a good start. They had, no doubt about that. They had learned about Christ by the testimony of people who had actually seen and heard Jesus himself they had understood and accepted the veracity of the gospel. They had even endured significant hardship on Christ's behalf, but now their faith was really being put to the test. Would their anchor hold? Would they stand? Would they cling with all their might to the gospel? That's the question that this entire book presses upon us. In every true church, there are believers and there are unbelievers. I make no pretense about that. I understand that there are some among us, though we don't know who they are, who are not truly children of God. There are in every church both regenerate and unregenerate. There are those who have been genuinely born again and those who call themselves believers but who are not. Every true church has people who say they believe in, joy, in Jesus and enjoy coming to church, but who have never really embraced Christ and repented of their sins. They've never 
to use an unbiblical term that communicates, I think, they've never made a commitment to Christ. At least not one that's lasted. They look like Christians. They talk like Christians. In many respects, they act like Christians. They may even serve on boards and perform great ministry in the church. But truth be known, they remain indecisive about committing their all to him. They're still riding the fence. They're still playing the field, weighing their options. Perhaps they're afraid of persecution. Perhaps it's fear or guilt that keeps them from giving themselves completely over to Christ. Maybe it's pressure from family or friends, the threat of lost opportunities, success. In any case, they stand on the edge of true salvation but are in danger of missing it forever. They're right there. They're right at the edge. They're so close to true salvation, but they're in danger of missing it. We all know people like this. People who are intellectually convinced but never really committed. Friends who started out so well and seemed to hold such promise for the kingdom of God, but years later when you catch up with them again, you find that somehow they drifted far from their initial profession. My wife and I went to the same college. That's where we met. And it's amazing to look back now, having some little contact with the people that we were so close to then, to see how few... How few walk with Christ and how many have all but abandoned him except in name. Somehow some tide or current caught hold of their life when they were least expecting it. And before long they found themselves miles away from where they began and their faith somehow became shipwrecked. Or if not shipwrecked, useless. This is the kind of person the author is speaking to this morning. And perhaps he's speaking to you. John MacArthur writes, hell, hell is undoubtedly full of people who never actively opposed Jesus Christ, but who simply neglected the gospel. They know the truth and even believe the truth in the sense that they, act, that they acknowledge its truthfulness and its righteousness. They are aware of the good news of salvation provided in Jesus Christ, but are not willing to commit their lives to him. And so they drift past the call of God into eternal damnation. The author of Hebrews is convinced that some in this little Jewish, perhaps house church, believed that they were saved and were actually lost. They were in danger, and they didn't know it. And so he breaks from his discussion about the supremacy of Christ over the angels and pleads with us to make certain that we truly belong to Christ that we are truly His, as Paul said, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Don't just take it for granted. Test yourself. And Peter said the same thing, different words, 2 Peter 1, 10. He exhorts us with these words, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. I don't have time this morning, but just trace the word diligent and its derivatives through the book of Hebrews, and you see it again and again and again and again. Be all the more diligent, Peter says, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Oh, beloved, the great danger to most of our souls this morning is that we will sit here in this beautiful church building And that somehow we might fall into unbelief. Not that we would fall into some big issue of immorality. Not that we would in some way destroy our marriages. Not that we would be somehow tempted to commit a crime against the state or violate our family. No, the greatest danger is that we would be comfortably indifferent about the lost condition of our souls. 
that we would sit in church week after week after week like a, a group of sleepy spiritual seekers who never get the real thing. You see, it's dangerous to be a drifter. It's dangerous to be a drifter. It's dangerous to sit in church week after week as if relaxing on some inner tube in, in a lazy river floating downstream. The Christian life is not a cakewalk. It was never intended to be. It's a constant fight against all kinds of treachery and deception that's laid against our hearts. We must battle against our flesh. We must battle against the forces of evil that would play upon our flesh and lead us to become indifferent to the gospel, indifferent to Christ. The enemy of your soul would love nothing more than to lull you to sleep at your post when you should be diligently standing guard over your own soul. It's dangerous to be a drifter. And that's what the author says, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay more, much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So that we do not drift away. We see spiritual drifters all through the New Testament. This is not a new concept. The spiritual drifters are everywhere. For example, the crowds who follow Jesus, John chapter 6, verse 2, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus sent his men across the lake, the sea, in a boat, and he catches up with them. The crowds don't know where he is. They knew he didn't get into the boat. They figure out that he's on the other side of the lake, don't know how he gets there, and they're just... They're just frantic. And so they, they all, this crowd of 5,000, probably 20,000, it's 5,000 men, they pick up stakes, they pack up their tents or whatever they've got, and they run around the sea. And they get to the lake. They get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they find Jesus. And they confront him and say, how did, how did you get over here? And Jesus, in his inimitable style, answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying you people are more concerned about getting what you want out of the signs. You're more concerned about getting what you want out of the miracles than what the miracles mean. What do they mean? They mean, I am the Christ. I am your Messiah. I am your Savior. You would be foolish to reject me. They missed it altogether. That's the greatest danger. Judas was a drifter. John chapter 6. You know, Judas came on board with all the other apostles for three Years, he walked with Jesus. He saw everything. John chapter 6, verse 64, the Lord Jesus said, But there are some of you who do not believe. And he was speaking about people in the crowd, perhaps, but John throws in this point of commentary. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. There were drifters in the crowds, maybe most of the crowd, and there was one of his own. There was one of his own. Judas spent three years with Jesus, and presumably he saw all the miracles with his own eyes. Surely he believed that Jesus was a true worker of miracles and a great teacher. No doubt Judas believed that he believed. He believed he was a believer. And I'm afraid that there are many, even some in our own church, who perhaps think they are believers because they sing about Jesus, they listen to his word, they follow him to an extent that satisfies their idea of what salvation requires, 
but in reality, they're just floating downstream and not really engaging in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Not testing themselves. Not being diligent to examine their own hearts. Ananias and Sapphira were drifters. They were part of the first century church. Not only the first century church, but the first generation church. They were in it from the beginning. You got Pentecost. You got the 3,000 who were born again. They were probably a part of that 3,000. They were likely there. They saw what happened. They had heard about Jesus. Everybody knew what had happened with Jesus. You remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus secretly came and uh, walked with them and, and did not allow them to know who he was. And he pretended he didn't know what happened in Jerusalem. And the disciples said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened this weekend? Everybody knew. Everybody knew the story of Jesus. There was controversy over it, yes. But Ananias and Sapphira saw this spiritual wave. And so they grabbed their boards and they jumped for it. They were riding that way for all they could get. They were in the church. They were known by the church. Perhaps they were even serving in the church. They were shepherded by Peter himself. But the hypocrisy of their lives came to light when they attempted to promote themselves in the eyes of others by lying about the land that they sold. And what did God do? He struck them dead. It's dangerous to be a drifter. It's dangerous to be inattentive and careless about your salvation. It's dangerous to be indecisive and disengaged about eternity. Children, listen to me. Teenagers especially. It's a dangerous thing. To take your salvation for granted. In these four verses, the author is attempting to wake us up to our need. And to do so, he argues by appealing to three truths. Three truths. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. Number one, the identity of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. The author begins by saying, for this reason we pay Close, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The question is, for what reason? He says, for this reason. For what reason? What reason? Well, the reason he just gave, namely, the identity of Christ, the identity of Jesus. We just invested nine weeks working our way through what the author has said about the glory of Jesus Christ. How that he is the very word of God, a greater word than any and all of the prophets. How he is the very son of God himself, verse 2, and the very radiance of God's glory. How he is the exact representation of God's nature. He's made of the same stuff as God. And how he is the sustainer of the universe and the purifier of every sinful heart that believes and embraces him. He is, the, he is so glorious, the Bible says, he sits at the right hand of majesty on high. And that means he shares the very throne of Almighty God. Beyond all that, he is also worshipped by the angels in that, the, in that God has commanded them to worship him. Who in their right mind would ever reject such a one as this? Especially when this very God made himself of no reputation and humbled himself and became a man and humbled himself even to the point of death, dying the death that we sinners deserved. How could we be undecided about him? How could we possibly drift away to some offer other than him? How could we ever miss an opportunity to be acquainted and united with him? It is folly. 
It is utter foolishness to the eternal extreme to reject him. Nevertheless, it's clear that this is a very real and dangerous possibility. It's possible to hear the message time after time after time after endless time, but never really pay attention to what you're hearing. To sit in church, to learn to sit in church. I tell you what, children, I hear this all the time from people who visit Calvary Bible Church. I always ask them, were you made to feel at home today? And people probably 60% of the time, maybe 70% of the time say, yeah, we have been incredibly blessed and loved by the people. But the most impressive thing that we've seen is how well, how many children there are in the service and how well they behave. And I say, praise God for that. But perhaps this passage is speaking to you well-behaved, well-mannered children, especially you well-mannered teenagers. Do not let your well-manneredness and the compliments you receive from Christian brothers and sisters to lull you into being a drifter who just assumes all is well. You're floating down the Niagara River and you don't realize you're coming to the Great Falls. And you are totally unprepared. Because mom and dad are Christians. You've always been a part of the church. You've heard so many long sermons by Pastor Dan. Surely God will let you into the kingdom now. And you may be lost because you're being careless, because you're being lazy about your faith. And so the author says, for this reason, that is because of the identity of Jesus, we must pay closer attention. The word for close attention means extreme care. Extreme care, lest we drift away from salvation, the salvation we have become so accustomed to hearing. Now, please, let me make it clear. He is not saying you can lose your salvation. He is saying that the offer of salvation is presented to you week after week, day after day. Every time the scriptures are opened, the gospel is there. Could it be that you become a spiritual gospel inspector, a connoisseur of gospel presentations, and yet you have never embraced the cross? It's like people who, it's like the jewelry store owner who has precious diamonds throughout his store and can sell them to others but doesn't possess one for himself. It's like the couple that came by my house recently to talk to us about replacing windows because one of my fine children broke one. And so we're needing to replace them. And this couple came and they were telling us about these wonderful windows that were nearly $1,000 a piece, right, for windows. And I started asking them questions. And you know what became apparent? They were masters of telling us all the features and benefits of these windows. But when they referred to their own house, it became clear they didn't have these windows. They want them for everybody else. They can tell you all about it, but they don't have one. That's the kind of person the author of Hebrews is speaking to. You know all about it. You can tell all the features and benefits of the product that God is offering. You've led other people to receive it, perhaps. You've convinced the doubter. You have engaged the skeptic. And yet, while you profess Christ, you do not possess Christ. The offer of the gospel 
stands like a harbor for you to enter. And you've got your sails down. And you're floating with the current right past the harbor. So the author says, for this reason, because of the identity of Christ, you must take extreme care, lest we drift away from salvation that we've become so accustomed to here. I was thinking about this idea of drifting away. There's a lot of illustrations we can use, but my mind immediately went to my childhood. Uh, most people who grow up in Texas, in this part of Texas anyway, don't spend a lot of time at the ocean, right? It's a long ways from here. Even the Gulf is a long way. But I didn't grow up here. I grew up in New Jersey. And say what you want about the beaches up there, but we used to spend a, a significant amount of time every year uh, playing in the Atlantic Ocean. We'd spend our weekends there. I can hardly remember a summer where my parents did not rent a house there for us to uh, vacation at the Jersey Shore. And we would go and we would run down to the water. Me and my siblings would run down to the water and we would play. But before my father would allow us to enter the water, he would lecture us. And he would say, now children, I want you to have fun. But you need to be careful. There's a strong undertow here. You see that orange flag? It's a warning. It's telling us that there's a danger, dangerous undercurrent here. And if you're not careful, it'll pull you out and really send you down, down through the current, uh, down the beach, so that when you turn around and look back up, we won't be anywhere to find. And I can tell you that happened to me many times. Here's what happens. You get in the water and you start looking out at this vast ocean. And no matter where you look, it all looks the same. And you don't realize that the current is making you drift out and down. And you just go further and further and further. And an hour later, you turn around and look up to where your mom and dad were. And there isn't anybody there. Because you're nowhere near where you started. My dad used to say, the best way to do this is to get out into the water, turn your back to the ocean, and look at me. Find out where I am. Keep your eye on your mom and dad. And you always have a point of reference to fight the flow. And that's the way it is with us. We can look out over the world, and everywhere we look, it's the same. We're not having our eyes fixed on Christ, so we feel like we're doing good. We look out and everything looks the same. It's just ocean out there. You're in any point of reference. It's just entertainment. It's just money. It's just success. It's just power. It's just sex. It's just all kinds of pleasure. It's everything. It's like living in a candy store. Everywhere you look, there are options. But there's a current. And it's taking you far from Christ. The author of Hebrews is saying, we must be all the more diligent. Lest the current of this persecution cause you to drift away from the gospel in favor of better things, or so you think. He's warning that some of us are drifting in dangerous currents we're careless and unconcerned about our salvation, thinking all is well, when in reality we are headed toward shipwreck, and we don't even know it. Beloved, if Jesus is who the Bible reveals him to be, then we are fools if we don't throw ourselves completely into his care. The identity of Jesus should be enough to catapult Anyone off the fence into full commitment to Christ. But that's not the only reason the author gives. There's a more sobering reason than that. Not only the identity of Jesus, but the severity of judgment. Number two, the severity of judgment. Look with me at verse two. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, 
And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Someone will say, what's he talking about? I don't understand what he's saying. Well, that's why we're here. I can't say the first time I looked at this, I understood what he was talking about. But that's why we study the word. What is he talking about here? Well, that's a good question. Every Jewish reader would have known instinctively what the author was talking about. He's speaking about the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and everything that went along with it. This was the word spoken through angels. Let me read again. For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. What's he talking about? The law of God. The law of God. This was the word spoken through the angels. As we learned in past weeks, the Jews understood that the law of God was ordained by angels. And Paul says explicitly in Galatians 3.19, and Stephen made reference to it in Acts chapter 7, just before they stoned him to death for saying it. This is why the author invests an entire chapter to communicate that Jesus is infinitely greater than the angels, because the angels were the ones, the means by which God ordained the law. And the law was the centerpiece of all the Old Testament life. All Jewish life was centered around the law. It was so we would understand that he is greater than the law of God and that he is its source. The Lord Jesus is greater than the angels. He is greater than the law. Because from him these things derive. This is why the author invested so much time communicating to us that Jesus is infinitely greater than the angels. Every Jew would have understood some significant truths about this. Every Jew would have understood intuitively certain truths about the law that he's speaking of here. Number one, they would have understood intuitively that the law was unalterable. That's the term he uses here. He's building on their knowledge. He's taking his audience from where he knows they are to where they need to be. He's saying, you already know that the law of God is unalterable. In other words, it is firm. It is inflexible. It was, it was not like a wax nose that you can bend and shape and do whatever you want with. You can't form it into something that appeals to you. It's law. And there is no mercy in law. There is no grace in law. It has one desire to condemn you. To condemn you. That's why we need the Ten Commandments. Please don't misunderstand the purpose of the Ten Commandments, beloved. We'll ask some people sometimes, uh, how do you believe God is going to allow you into heaven? What do you have to do? Which is kind of a trick question. And they'll say something about keeping the Ten Commandments. Do you realize that the Ten Commandments were never intended to save anyone? No one keeps the Ten Commandments. No one ever has except the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus made that clear again and again and again and again and again to the Pharisees. You're holding up a standard that you yourselves don't even keep, and then you want to kill me for violating one of your standards. Nobody keeps the law. Nobody obeys the law. You know what the purpose of the law was? To demonstrate that. To demonstrate that none of us measure up to God's standard. Jesus said, no one enters the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees. How great is that? How righteous is that? Well, in the last verse, Matthew chapter 5, the very last verse, he explains. He says, therefore, you must be Perfect, even as your Father is perfect. In other words, you've got to be as good as God. You've got to be as good as God. That's the standard. If you want to get into heaven, you've got to be as good as God. It's none of this nonsense about, well, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. That doesn't work, folks. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in the court of law. Here, does it? We've, we've got a federal attorney here, and if he goes to court and he's uh, trying someone who has just committed murder in a bad drug deal, 
And the defendant gets on the stand and they say, how do you plea? And he says, well, you know, you're right. I did, I did kill the guy. But I used to share my ice cream with my brother. And I was a Boy Scout when I was a teenager and, and almost made eagle. And the judge is going to say, that's irrelevant. You broke the law. It's irrelevant. And so what was the Ten Commandments for? To condemn you. To show you that your only hope was to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. And that's the gospel. But when you look at the law, you're looking at an unalterable, firm, inflexible code that cannot be broken. It was not a document crafted by men and ordained by human government. The law came from the very heart of God and was administered by angels. How could it ever be changed? How could it ever be amended? It could not. And so the first thing that a Jew would have understood about the law is that it's unalterable. But secondly, they would have understood that it is flawlessly just. It is flawlessly just. Even when the law demanded a harsh sentence... It was never unjust because it reflected the fearful and thrice holy character of God. The only reason we would think the law of God is unfair is because we have a low view of sin and a very low view of God. But the Jews understood the nature of the law. It was inviolable. Punishment for breaking it was certain. Our text says every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. If a person committed adultery or worshipped a false god or blasphemed God or broke the Sabbath, he was stoned to death by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You remember Numbers chapter 19, I assume. After the law was given, God gave his law to Israel saying that they should not do any work on the Sabbath. Beginning with verse 32 of Numbers 15, we read, Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. And then the Lord said to Moses, The man should be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And so all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the law had commanded. You say that's harsh. No, that's holy. Almighty God is infinitely more devoted to His glory and His holiness than He is to your life. He's more concerned that His name be held in honor than that you or I live. At the end of the book of Hebrews, the author will say, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. You say, why such a harsh sentence for such a seemingly insignificant breach of the law? Because God's standard is unalterable, and every sin is condemned by His holy law. And notice now how the author of Hebrews argues from the lesser to the greater. To the drifters in the church, he warns that if the written law was that inflexible in its condemnation of sin, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying it's bad enough to turn your back on a code of law. That might result in your death, but to turn your back on the person of the Son of God is a greater crime than you have the capacity to imagine. You see, in the Bible, this is so crucial, beloved, you have to understand this. In the Bible, 
God's sentence of judgment against a sinner is always related to the amount of light, privilege, understanding that that person or those people had received. The more truth that had been revealed to them, to us, the greater culpability we have in the eyes of the judge so that there are varying and just degrees of punishment. Do you realize that? There will be varying degrees of judgment in hell. Not everyone in hell, all will suffer, but not all will suffer the same. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 20 through 24. Matthew eleven twenty through 24. And he, that's Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Notice that. He began denouncing the cities where most of his miracles had been done. Because they did not repent. They were drifters. They had seen the signs. They had heard the proclamation of the gospel. They had seen the Lord Jesus prove who he was before their eyes, and they would not repent. And so Jesus says to them, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be, look at the next two words, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which, by the way, was his uh, base of operation for ministry, was Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had been done in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be, listen, more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What do we see here? We see that the severity of the judgment of God passes against a sinner on the day of judgment will correspond directly to the amount of spiritual light and privilege that they had. The principle is clear. The more you know, the greater the punishment for rejecting what God has revealed. The more you know, the more punishment, more severe the punishment will be for rejecting what you know. There will be degrees of punishment in hell. Greater judgment is reserved for those who have been exposed to more truth about salvation in Christ alone, but rejected it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, Verse 47, Luke chapter 12, verse 47, he says these words. And the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging, he will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. To whom much is given, much will be required. Oh, beloved, do you see? The danger of drifting is all the more frightening for people like us. Who have by grace been given the spiritual privileges most of the world has never known. You know why Eric Mock is in Moscow this morning? He's taking the gospel and the truth of the word of God to people who are less spiritually privileged than we are. Who have less light than we do. Amazingly, so many of them have so much less light and are so much more holy. We have the Word of God. 
in every conceivable translation that you can imagine. We have a problem here. We can't hardly read anything as a congregation unless we have it in print in the bulletin. We can't read a text of Scripture anymore. It used to be when I was a child that, you know, uh, the Schofield King James Bible was all there was, and we could have congregational reading, and everybody would read out of their own Bible. We used to sing, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Schofield's Notes in Scripture Press. <laughs> I mean, our whole lives, spiritual lives, revolved around Schofield's King James Bible. We've got so many different versions today. It's stunning. It's almost sickening when we compare how little we use them and how sadly little we know of them. We have resources at our disposal so that at the touch of a button, we can have the original languages of the Bible laid open before us. You know what? I don't know Greek very well, but I got great software. <laughs> I got so many resources on my computer. I, I, it's, if you open up my computer, it'll say Dan's Mobile Office. I take everything in there. It's got books, it's got commentaries, it's got resources, and it's all right there in this little bitty package that I can carry with me everywhere. Most of the world doesn't have anything like that. You've got the internet, you've got eSword, right? We have more gifted teachers and preachers of the Word of God per capita than perhaps any other country in the world. We have 90% of the theologians. We have 90 or more percent of the seminaries. We have seminaries and bookstores. We have stunning videos that even portray the life of Christ so that you don't even have to engage your brain to learn what His life was all about. You just watch. We have beautiful churches with great music and technically precise sound systems and recording equipment to make hearing incredibly easy. And if you miss it, you can pick up the CD on your way out. You can have it mailed to you for a dollar. The author of Hebrews is saying, do you understand what danger that puts you in? You who are so blessed, you who are so privileged, you who have it all. And to the Jews, it was even more than that. You had the law. You had the salvation from Egypt. You were given the Passover. You were given the feasts. You were given the sacrifices. You were given the temple. It all pointed to Christ. You were given the promised land. You were even given the Christ. You were given the apostles. For you to reject all of that, do you think you will not be in trouble? Do you think you can scoff at God's precious gifts and walk away and think He will not be angry with you? He will be eternally angry at you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so he asks, if the Jews in the Old Testament suffered such severe punishment for violating the written code, how will we escape? How will we escape if we neglect the greater thing, the fulfillment of all of that which was before all of those things were merely shadow. Christ is the substance. If you reject the, the shadow, you're in trouble. But if you reject the substance, you are in more trouble than you could ever imagine. And you will suffer eternally for such an eternal insult to a holy God. Shall we neglect, shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We shall not. And our condemnation will be made much more severe. 
And this is the warning repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10:29. How much severer punishment do you think we will deserve who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified and have insulted the Spirit of grace? Hebrews 12:25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much more will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Are you one of the convinced but uncommitted? Are you sitting in the pew and standing on the fence at the same time? then you are in grave danger, my friend. It's time to make your choice, either to receive or to reject. But every time you come and hear the Word of God and walk away unaffected, you add condemnation to your soul. I know that's not a popular thing to preach. And I don't care. This is our hope. And if we miss it, we've missed everything. And so the author appeals to us first by the identity of Christ, second by the certainty of judgment, and now third, the credibility of the evidence. Look at verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. By the way, that pretty much proves this was not Paul who wrote it. Because Paul heard it himself. Paul was an eyewitness. He spoke to the Lord personally. But that's just a side note. After it was at first spoken Through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both of signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In case there is any doubt about the veracity and the claims of the gospel, we're reminded of the evidence God has offered to verify its truth. Number one, it was proclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that should be enough. Jesus proved over and over and over again who he was. He demonstrated it through his wisdom, even as a child. First, it was proclaimed by the Lord. That should be enough. But there's more evidence. Then it was brought to us by those who had personally seen and heard. In other words, the apostles brought it to us. And people who were there, the disciples, people who followed him around, they came and affirmed that these things were true. We saw it with our very eyes. Not only that, but God spoke out of heaven. At least three times. At least three times. One, at his baptism. He spoke directly to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist testified that God had said, This is my beloved son. He spoke again on the Mount of Transfiguration in front of Peter, James, and John when they saw Jesus Christ changed into all of his glory, or at least so much that they could hardly stand it. And the cloud came over and a voice came out and said, this is my son, listen to him. And then in the very last week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, some Greeks came to speak with Jesus. And Jesus began speaking to them things that they had not asked him about, which was his normal way of speaking, getting right to the heart of the issue. And right in the middle of it, a voice called out from heaven, This is my Son. I have glorified it, referring to his name, and I will glorify it again, he said. At least three times God spoke from heaven so that there would be no mistake who Jesus is. And then there were signs Jesus said, if you don't believe my testimony, at least believe the miracles that I do. At least believe that the signs that I do are from God. 
And they said, no, they're from the devil. You're insane and you have a demon and your miracles you work from the devil. And Jesus said, if you believe that, then you're saying the Holy Spirit's a liar. That is the ultimate unbelief. And there is no hope for you. There were signs. There were wonders. There were miracles. There were people raised from the dead. The lame walked. The blind could see. The deaf could hear. The mute could speak. And then if that were not enough, the Holy Spirit came. Then, by the way, the resurrection. The resurrection. And then the appearances of Jesus for 40 days. And hundreds of people saw him. And then there was the Holy Spirit at Pentecost who came, making the sound of a rushing mighty wind and poured out gifts upon the church so that there would be no mistaking that this message that Peter was about to preach was from God. This message that Paul was preaching was from God. This message that was coming from James and Andrew and the others was from God. The author is saying, if you are unimpressed with all of that, then you are in serious trouble, beloved churchgoer. If all of this evidence cannot move you from being convinced to being committed, what hope is there for you? Because that's all there is. Listen, folks, you don't have to be an antagonist to the gospel to go to hell. You don't have to reject Christ outwardly to face eternal damnation. All you have to do is drift. All you have to do is show up or not show up, depending on how you feel. Just do nothing and you will go to hell. You don't have to make a choice. Just sit in your little raft on the river and drift on by. Enjoy a little spirituality for comfort's sake. But be careful not to get too carried away lest you become a fanatic. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. It's not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. Just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal, and I want it in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 of God, please. Drifter. These are the sentiments of a spiritual drifter. Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Always hearing, but never receiving. Always convinced, but never really committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a spiritual drifter? Are you a spiritual drifter? Has the current of wealth pushed you off course? Has the tide of man's or friend's approval kept you from fully giving your life to Christ? Has the crosswind of comfort and a sense of temporal security wooed you away from your first love? Then you are a drifter. And I am here to tell you, you are in serious danger. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to go against the flow. It's a call to wake up to the danger that awaits the spiritually careless and unconcerned. It's a call to snap out of our spiritual lethargy and fully engage in all that God has given us in Christ. It's a call to repent of any and everything that is in this life that would interfere with living with all our might for the glory of Christ. And someday we will all give an account of what we did with all of the spiritual privileges that were laid before us day after day, week after week, every time we turn on the radio. Will we be found faithful? The question that matters is not, did you start well? But will you finish well? Will you exit this life clinging to Christ with all your might for the salvation that God has promised in Him alone? By grace, 
without any respect to works for the glory of Christ and for your own eternal joy. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You must choose. You must choose. I pray by God's grace you choose Christ.